Good morning. So good to see you guys. This is awesome. I'm just going to move stuff around while I talk to you. My name is Doug, one of the pastors for our church. I'm the taller one of the two. Just saying. Um, And also, I started a ninja club. Um, So if you have one of these shirts, congratulations, you're in it. Um, And if you don't, I'm so sorry. Uh, No, actually, this is for uh, some friends of ours who uh, you will meet later on. Um, Anyways, wasn't last week a blast? Oh my gosh, are you guys here in this room? Wow, hello. It wasn't last week a blast? It was awesome. Um, And I'm excited for what God is doing this morning, uh, today, this week. One of the things that I love about our church is how many new people there are. Like, uh, I've got to meet some of you, hear bits of your story, and I'm so glad that you're here. Really, in a lot of ways, most of us are new to this church, right? We're building new relationships, um, taking new risks, and volunteering and serving in new ways, and we love it. God is doing a new thing, and we're happy to be a part of that. Speaking of new, uh, my family just moved into a really old house. It's over 100 years old, but with that really old house came some new neighbors, And this weekend, um, one of those neighbors about a half mile down the road was having a yard sale. So I thought, oh, what a great way to go meet the new neighbors. I'm going to go to their yard sale, find something cool, buy stuff from them, all that. So go to the yard sale. I get there, and the first thing I see is this really cool toy John Deere riding lawnmower. Like one of those things that your toddler sits in and it's battery operated. I was like, this is awesome, because our house came with like a big riding lawnmower, John Deere, all that stuff. I was like, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to get it. So I get out, introduce myself. I'm like, I want that right there. She's like, that's great. The reason it's so cheap is that the wheels come off pretty easy. Like they're not on there securely. She kind of showed me how the wheels can fall off, that sort of thing. She's like, are you a handyman? I was like, uh, well, you know, kind of like, you know, that, one of those like non-answers. And then I go and buy some other stuff. And then I come back and I like pay for the little John Deere riding lawnmower, load it up in the trunk of my car, quite precariously, where half of it's falling out. And I like do like a four point U-turn to get out of their driveway and go the half mile home. And I'm thinking all the way home, my wife's going to vote for me for dad of the year. The kids are going to be so excited. This is amazing. So I get home, pull it out of the trunk. I'm like, look, kids. They're like, dad, that's so cool. Where's the wheel? I was like, oh, Crud. So what I had to do with all my new neighbors watching is I had to creep along that half mile stretch of road with the like flashers on. They're like, who is that guy? You know, all that sort of stuff. And so I go all the way back and I can't find the wheel anywhere. And then I get back to the people who I bought it from. And I did not go back into their property. I did not go back to the garage sale. I was like, no, I can't do that. I'm too embarrassed. This is like so shameful. They explained it to me. And then I thought it was going to be awesome and loaded up. And then the wheel fell off. I was experiencing shame. I was embarrassed. Most likely you have felt shame too. And my shame was kind of a silly shame, but there's real shame. I was experiencing real shame. Maybe you had the wrong name brand of clothes and all the students made fun of you. That shame. You made an honest mistake at work, but now you want to cover that up. Shame. You have a secret lost in your, uh, locked in your past, and you hope to take it to the grave with you. Why? Shame. There's a pattern in your life that you know is harmful to you and to others, but it just won't go away, so then you just pretend like, oh, it's no big deal. Why? Shame. We all deal with shame deep down inside. It's there. We know it. And it bothers us. It influences our lives, our relationships, the decisions that we make. 
This morning, we're going to look at a story of how Jesus deals with shame. And if you're like me, usually Jesus isn't the first place I go whenever I'm experiencing shame. In fact, you may already be predicting Jesus's response. He's going to be frustrated with me. He's going to be mad for what I did. He's going to fire me or he's going to leave me. But let's give Jesus an honest look and see how he does respond. Go in your Bibles to John chapter 8 verse 1. And we're just going to track through the story that Eric read to us. John chapter 8 verse 1. And we'll just jump in there. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So here's what's happening here. Jesus, early in the morning, he goes to the temple, which is the most famous place in all of the nation. This is as public as you could get. You have Jesus, a controversial figure in that day. He's at the temple, which is way more popular than the Mall of the Bluffs. And you got a big, great crowd gathering around him to hear him teach. You couldn't get any more public in ancient Israel than this. Jesus at the temple with a crowd into that scene happens verse three the scribes and the pharisees so these are the religious dudes who yell at the middle school basketball refs for calling every travel if you remember that from last week these guys showing up again can't get rid of them the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him to jesus teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery There is the shame. These scribes and Pharisees are moral police who use this woman, shame her, highlight her sin, and drag her to the worst possible place that you could imagine. They are embarrassing her, humiliating her, shaming her. These scribes and Pharisees remind me of the adult chaperones at my high school dances. I don't know if they still do this, like it's a different generation, but when I grew up and where I grew up, there always had to be adult chaperones at the like school dances, right? And so all of us students, we're we're like dancing, trying to have fun to achy, breaky heart and whoop, there it is, right? Some of you were there. Yeah. You remember, and the chaperones are like helicoptering around, like being awkward, hovering, all that sort of stuff. And they literally have tape measures. Okay. And then just when I swear, By the moon and the stars at night. Yeah, you remember that? Just when that's getting to the good part, they're coming to make sure you're not too close to her, right? And if you are too close, they're separating you, right? The adult chaperones were the moral police at the school dances. The scribes and the Pharisees were the moral police of Jesus's day. And they catch this woman in adultery. They grab her and they drag her to Jesus in the most public place of the day in front of a huge crowd. I can guarantee you that what this woman is feeling in that moment is shame, dishonor. She's feeling used and exposed. Sure, she was sinning. She was. She was breaking God's law. But did she have to be dragged out in public to be humiliated? Did she have to be put right in the middle of a huge crowd? I wonder this morning if we might identify with this woman. We walked into a room. We walked into a crowd. And chances are, we came in with some secrets. 
We came in with some struggles, some shame. None of us are perfect in this room, far from it. And so we come in with this shame. Maybe it's something that you did. Maybe it's something that was done to you. And you feel the shame down inside. And you're wondering, will I be humiliated? Will I be exposed in church? Will I be shamed? These religious dudes, they thought that we should be. They brought this woman to the temple, to the church, to shame her. Now, look at verse 5. This is what they say. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So these guys are out to get Jesus. They're willing to shame and expose this woman so that they can shame and expose Jesus. They want to nail Jesus between a rock and a hard spot. So they remind Jesus that Moses commanded them to stone such women. But they conveniently forget that the law of Moses also commanded them to distribute the same punishment to the man who was involved. Right? It always takes two to tango when it comes to adultery. But these religious dudes were too cowardly to talk to the man or deal with the man. So they just exposed the weak, the vulnerable, the woman. It's shameful what they're doing. It's sinful what they're doing. It's actually dishonoring to God. But they probably don't even realize it. What these guys were doing is called religion. It's called religion. And this religion, it's a false religion, runs rampant in my own heart. In me, inside of me, there is this religious do-gooder who wants to maximize my my strengths, maximize your weaknesses, and pick and choose from God's word so that I always win. And this religion just kills joy in my life. Here's how it plays out in my marriage. My wife, Whitney, does something that I deem wrong. And so what I do is I think about how wrong she is. She did that wrong. Why didn't she do that differently? Why doesn't she treat me better? She's wrong. She's sinful. She's bad. And of course, while I'm thinking about how bad she is, I'm also thinking about how good I am. I am such a good husband. I love her and I serve her. I make sacrifices for her. She's so bad, but I'm so good. Right? I have become the moral police. I am playing the religion game, highlighting her weaknesses over against my strengths, winning every time. I'm even willing to pick and choose from God's word so that I look like the hero and she looks like the villain. It's religion. It's sinful. It's silly. It's wrong. And it's hurtful to the people around me. I play the religion game as well. Religion runs rampant in my heart. It runs rampant in your heart. It runs rampant in our culture. Religion always seems like a good idea at first, like adult chaperones at the high school dance party, right? We don't want things getting out of hand, correct? So religion always sounds good at first, but then what happens is we start adding rules, making up punishments, highlighting other sins and minimizing our own, and things go wrong. Religion is so common that you've probably played the religion game without even realizing it, much like these scribes and Pharisees. For example, ask yourself if you've ever thought or said these things. Religion sounds like, oh, I messed up again. I got to try harder and do better next time. Religion sounds like, 
Can you believe she did that? She should know better. Religion sounds like get your act together or something bad is going to happen to you. Religion sounds like shame on you for what you did. City Light Church, let me be super clear, just out there and obvious with this. We are not interested in that kind of religion. We don't preach religion. We preach Jesus. Jesus doesn't, like, amen. You can say it. We got it. Here we go. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, do more. Jesus says, I've already done it for you. Jesus doesn't say, I can't believe you did that. Jesus says, I'll take that on myself. Jesus doesn't say, shame on you. Jesus says, shame on me. I'll take that. We preach the gospel. We want to believe the gospel and enjoy the gospel. I'm getting ahead of myself into the story. So let's jump back into the story so that we track with the actual flow of the story. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them. Now, pause right there. I love what Jesus is doing. These religious dudes, these moral police, come running into the place, high and mighty, acting like they own the place, pushing and shoving through the crowd to get this woman right in the middle of the crowd. And then they try to rattle Jesus. They're like, we're going to nail him. We're going to get him this time. He's going to be shaking in his boots. But what does Jesus do? He bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Jesus takes a coffee break. He chills out. He doesn't get caught up in all of their drama. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't give in to these guilt-driven religious guys. He bends down and rides on the ground like a boss. I love this about Jesus. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He knew all of this was going to happen, so he's not shocked or surprised. I don't know about you, but I have some drama in my life right? Just in the last six months, my family, we sold our old house, moved in and lived with our in-laws for five months. I'm not going to make a joke there. (laughs) Lived with our in-laws, who we love for five months, remodeled a fixer-upper, thought we were going to have twins, didn't have twins, instead only had one baby who is as big as twins. And oh yeah, along the way, we were planting a church. So yeah, we got a little drama in my life. And what I love about Jesus is he is right there with me in that drama, but he isn't freaking out. I'm fretting. I'm worried. Jesus is calm. I'm thinking of all the worst case possible scenarios and everything that could go wrong. Jesus knows exactly how he's going to work things out. Jesus doesn't get pushed around. He doesn't get overrun. And no matter how big of a temper tantrum I throw, Jesus remains in charge. Amen, church? That is good news. And, but this drove the religious guys crazy, right? Because they're trying to cause a commotion. Jesus is taking a coffee break. So they just keep on pestering him. They're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, stop playing tic-tac-toe and answer our question. So then eventually, after Jesus has calmly thought through the situation, he stands up, right? And I can just almost see him pulling back, like to reveal the Superman thing. Like he, he stands up to them. I so wish I could have been there. And he says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Boom. The religious leaders are stunned. The crowd around them is shocked. 
And so they all think and ponder in their own minds what Jesus just said. And then slowly, one by one, beginning with the older ones, they drop their stones and walk away. Because they realize that they too have sinned. They too have disobeyed God's law. They too deserve a stoning just as much as this woman. And now it's only Jesus and this woman. One of the best lines of the whole story comes into view. Look at it. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Remember earlier, there was a huge crowd. They were in the most public, busy place in the whole nation. Rich and poor, young and old, huge crowd had come out together around Jesus and hear him teach. But now Jesus has sent all of them away and boiled it down to only this woman and he in the room alone. What a majestic, beautiful, intimate situation for this woman. What Jesus just did by silencing her accusers and sending them away is Jesus saved this woman from her shame. Jesus saved her from her shame. She had been thrust into the public eye because of her sin. She had been wrongly treated, unfairly judged, and unjustly exposed. But once she gets to Jesus, what does he do? He silences all of those accusers and sends them away, removing her shame. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. You see, shame is something that is put on us by others, by ourselves. Shame is something that comes on to us when we make a bad decision or make a mistake, when we are hurt or abused, when we are mistreated, when we sin or when we are sinned against. It's like a scarlet letter that gets sewn onto our chest and then we carry that around with us wherever we go and these accusers come along with us reminding us, you did this, you did that. How do you think Jesus is going to respond to that? So let me ask you this morning, who are your accusers? Who are your accusers? Maybe it's your history, something that you did when you were six or 16 or 64. And that memory plays in your head over and over again. And every time you believe a little bit more that it can never be fixed, it can never be changed. Maybe it's a decision that you made long ago and it's haunted you ever since then. Maybe it's a family member or a neighbor, or an old church leader. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior that is in your life right now. Shame is sustained by accusers. These memories, these voices, these people who constantly remind you what is wrong with you. And when we try to bring that shame to Jesus, they come with us and they are accusing us. And Jesus, what do you say about this? Jesus, what are you going to do? And praise be to God, Jesus is in the business of shutting up those accusers, silencing them, and Sending them away. Jesus saves us from our shame. Amen? He saves us from our shame. City Light Church, may we always rejoice that Jesus saves us from our shame. And the way he does this is by helping us drop our stones. You see, many of us, we walked in this morning, we came with secrets, we came with shame, we came with struggles, but chances are we came with stones also. 
And these stones are things that we use to protect ourselves from other people. These stones are things that we use to feel a little bit better, be able to look down at least a little bit on someone who's underneath us. We come with stones just as much as we come with shame and secrets. But Jesus saves us from our shame by helping us drop our stones. City Light Church, may we always be a people a family where our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, they're free to come and be open and honest and vulnerable among us because they know that when they come open and they come honest, they're not going to be met with stones. They're going to be met with grace. We don't have any stones to throw. All we have to give is grace. Shame thrives in the darkness, but joy grows in the light. Shame grows in the secret, but hope comes in a community of grace. May we always be that light. May we always be that community of grace that partners with Jesus in seeing people set free from shame. Amen? Amen. I got some ameners out there. I hear you guys. Keep it going. Amen. There we go. Now, the story isn't quite over yet. One more thing to see. As horrible as the scribes and Pharisees were, They were right about one thing. This woman had sinned. And as shocking as it may sound, adultery is a sin. And in the Bible, in the law, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all say the same thing. Adultery deserves death. She had committed sin and therefore she deserved death. So it's wonderful that Jesus saved her from her shame, but she still stands condemned. She does deserve punishment. So imagine this scene. She's standing before Jesus, just the two of them. One of them is sinful and stands condemned. The other is without sin and stands truly righteous. And just a few moments earlier, Jesus had said to them, let he who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Jesus is without sin. He should have. He could have been the first to throw the stone at her. She stands condemned. He stands righteous. But what does Jesus do? After Jesus saves her from her shame, he also saves her from her condemnation. Look at verse 11. He says, have they all gone? Anyone remain to accuse you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The only one who has the right to throw a stone. The only one who has the right to distribute punishment. The only one who has the right to point at the scarlet letter on her chest. Instead, lets the stone fall upon him. Instead, lets the uh, punishment come upon him. Instead, takes that scarlet letter and puts it on himself. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel that we love to preach. We love to sing. We love to talk about, and we love to believe. Two people stood in that room. One of them was condemned. The other was righteous, but instead of Jesus throwing the stone, he essentially said to her, I'll take it upon myself. I'll receive that condemnation. You go free. You go free. Jesus doesn't minimize her sin. He doesn't ignore her sin. Instead, he takes her sin upon himself. My friend, Jesus saves us from our shame and he saves us from our condemnation. 
You may have walked in here this morning with some secrets that you hope to take to your grave, but I want to tell you that Jesus took them to his grave. You go free this morning. You may have walked in here this morning afraid that you would be shamed and exposed and your sins hung out on the laundry line to dry so everybody can see them. I want to tell you this morning that Jesus took on your sins and then he hung on a cross to cover your shame and your sin. You go free this morning. Jesus saves us from our shame and then he saves us from our condemnation. What he did for this woman, he will gladly do for you too. You come to him. Stand before Jesus with your guilt, your shame, your condemnation, your sin. Give it to him, and he will give you joy, freedom, grace, and more and more of himself. This is the gospel. This is the promise of Jesus for you, for me, for all of us. The story ends with this last line from Jesus. He says to the woman, go, and from now on, sin no more. See, like, do you see that first Jesus took her shame, then he took her condemnation, then he called her to a new way of life? And so it is for all of us. Jesus sets us free. He pours his grace and his kindness on us, and that empowers us to live differently. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, to real life change. May it be multiplied a thousand times over in, among our church and in our city where we give grace. We see Jesus pouring out his kindness, and lives are transformed. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And it's so possible because all All of a sudden, Jesus becomes our deepest joy, our highest delight, and all we want is more of him. He's captivated us with his grace, captivated us by setting us free from shame and condemnation. Jesus did it for this woman in John chapter 8, and he's done it for many of us. This isn't just a fairy tale back then. It was true, and it is true today. This is a story that's been retold throughout the ages and rewritten into so many different lives. One of those lives and one of those stories is my friend Amy. And so I've asked Amy to come up and share her story of how Jesus has saved her from shame and condemnation. Come on up, Amy. You got Violet with you too. Hey, sweet Violet. We love you too, girl. You're live. There you go. All right. My story has a lot more details I'm going to share this morning, but I tried to whittle it down to a few minutes. Um... So I grew up in Omaha and attended the same Lutheran church through high school. We did VBS and youth group confirmation classes. Uh, We are expected to wear our Sunday best, to look good, behave well, and keep our noses clean. And like any good parents, mine had lots of rules we had to follow. Uh, No phone calls after 9. No activities on Sundays. Give 10% of our money to the church. Save 50%. Then we could spend the rest. Um, I was good with this way of life because I knew the rules. And I was able to be a good person by outwardly obeying my parents' rules. Internally, however, I grew more and more eager to flee the rules and run to the freedoms of the world. During my high school years, I was given a lot more freedom because I had earned my parents' trust. I took advantage of that trust and lied about who I was hanging out with and where I was going. They often thought I was studying with friends or working late. But in reality, I was hanging out with an older crowd and drinking quite heavily. I kept up my good grades, kept volunteering at church, and I kept up my appearance as a good girl. I didn't give any reason for my parents to doubt me, but I knew that if they ever found out, they would be devastated. 
When I was 16, my 18-year-old sister had a baby out of wedlock. She had already been out of our home for four years, but I remember the devastation of my parents and how it seemed to bring such shame on our family. Although much of that was perception of what others would think, it was very real for our family. This caused me to be more aware of my behavior and less aware of my heart. I thought that moving away from my parents' home would free me from the guilt I was feeling and would allow me to set my own rules. So after graduation, I moved to Northern California to attend college while working as a nanny. I was finally free from curfews and the feeling of always needing to act a certain way. That's when I ended up pregnant out of wedlock and completely alone. I remember weighing the consequences of my decision while I was back at home for Christmas that year. The decision to abort was easier than facing my parents and seeing the pain I had seen two years prior when my sister told them her news. I wanted to continue being the good girl and couldn't let them down. So at 14 weeks pregnant, I refused an ultrasound and aborted my baby. The weight of that guilt left me empty, so I decided to move back home to Nebraska to be near friends and family again. Back in Nebraska, I made some changes. I stopped partying and drinking and started working out. I thought I was getting everything back in order. Then I met a guy at the gym who professed to be a Christian. I thought this was my chance to put the past behind me and move on. After nine months, we decided to get married, and although my parents didn't approve of him, I figured they just didn't know him the way that I did. After two weeks of marriage, he became physically and emotionally abusive. I realized the mistake right away that I had made, and I was scared. I was too ashamed to call my parents, too scared to run away, and too proud to ask for any help. Then I called out to God for help. Despite my sin, despite my shame and my rebellion, like the loving father of a prodigal, my heavenly father came running with his arms wide open. Mm -hmm. Through a series of relationships and miracles that God joined together, I was able to flee that relationship and ended up safely back at home with my parents once again. There were many times I thought God was punishing me for all of my bad decisions, but I was wrong. God holds no grudges against his children, never. In reality, he used my brokenness and hopelessness to draw me back to himself. He was persistent in his pursuit of me. He didn't want a good girl, he wanted me. He wanted me to find my freedom in Jesus, not in good behavior. He wanted me to find my freedom in Jesus, not in covering my shame. In 2007, my brother recommended a Bible teaching church where I should get connected. I experienced unconditional love tangibly for the first time there and learned to love the freedom and safety of living in obedience to God. That same year, I was baptized right here in the pristine Lake Manawa. (laughs) God continued to bless me that year when a handsome, God-fearing man told me he wasn't looking to date. He was looking for a wife, and God told him that she was me. We have been married eight years and have four beautiful children, and I've learned to trust that despite my sin and my disobedience, God loves me. He has fully forgiven me by the blood of Jesus and sees me as righteous. And it is my delight to follow him and serve him with the grace and strength that he provides. Mm. Amen. Amen. Amy, thank you for sharing. I've got to know you and Tim, some of our dearest friends in our lives. And it's incredible the grace that God has given you guys. Amy's able to stand up here and share this, not just because she's like courageous or bold, but because Jesus has given her freedom. 
He has taken something that could have been hurt and he's redeemed it to where it's brought healing to many others, even some of you in this room this morning. So I want to encourage you guys, just like Amy, there's things that have happened in your past, things that you'd want to take to your grave, things that you would be ashamed of. And Jesus is in the business of redemption. He's in the business of silencing those accusers and instead removing your shame, removing your condemnation and giving you only grace more and more of himself. So let's pray for Amy. Jesus, thank you for Amy. Thank you for Tim. Uh, They're incredible children. Oh God, thank you for your story of grace and redemption in her life and Tim's life. I'm honored to be their friend. I'm honored to journey with them. Jesus, may we continue to be a church that mirrors what Tim and Amy are to so many others. May we drop our stones and only give grace to others. Would you do that in our midst? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.